Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. It is life and bread for us. Um, God, we receive it not as words from a book this morning, but words from you. Every bit of scripture is breathed out by you, and we receive it this morning expectantly on this first Sunday of Advent. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 together, and then we're going to jump over into Luke chapter 3, and we're going to read the genealogy of Jesus, uh, because none of you have ever done it before, probably. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But it's one of those passages of Scripture that usually you get to and you're like, "Mm, yeah, I can't pronounce any of that. I'm just going to kind of skip over that and keep going. I get it. Jesus had uh, many grandparents. So, But let's get there. Luke 2, verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. Now let's jump over. Uh, Jesus is about to be born. As Brian said, spoiler alert, Um, and we're going to get there, Uh, but today we're also going to just look at quickly the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, verses 23 through 38. Um, And so this is kind of fast-forwarding a little bit in the story. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of, again, Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Methatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nachshan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admon, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Akphras, I'm not even going to try that one, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of of God. 
And uh, if you're wondering if that was the right pronunciation, uh, it is, yes. Because I read it that way. All right. Sometimes you just got to fake it till you make it. So, no, it's probably not anywhere close to the right pronunciation on any of that. Um, and I thought about practicing it, but I said, what the heck, why not just read it? Why is this important? Why does it matter? Why, why is it something that we should take time to look at and to go through and to read through and remind ourselves of where Jesus was coming from? The reason it's important is because Jesus was not just arbitrarily born and then God decided, I'm going to use him. Jesus was intended. He was planned. It was orchestrated. And it was all laid out from the very beginning, even before what we know as the beginning. And in some crazy and insane way that we in our finite minds are incapable of fully comprehending, Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth. And so, from the very beginning, we as humanity already exist in this already not yet tension of expectancy that there is evidence and knowledge of something that God is up to that has already been put in motion that in some way is already established. We have not yet just lived it out ourselves chronologically. And there is a lot there to unpack, and uh, it is our joy as believers to spend the rest of our lives unpacking what that means. It's not something that we can do in one Sunday or in a sermon or in an essay or a blog post. It's something that we're going to live out and live in the tension of that for the rest of our lives, that God is at work and yet his work is complete and we just have not yet completely lived it out. There's this already not yet tension to our faith and it's something that we live in. And because of that, hear me, it speaks to us of hope. This already not yet tension speaks to us of hope because hope is about something that we've not yet experienced. If we'd already experienced it, then it's not hope. It's just a present reality. But because we live in this already not yet tension, it, the, it speaks to us that there is something that is coming and it's this hope. And so for us in the 21st century, looking back on what we've just read and, and, and some things that have transpired throughout the course of history, we look back at an already of Jesus' birth, of his ministry, of his life, of his death in our place, of his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, but we also look forward to a not yet of his return and the complete consummation of God's reconciliation of all creation. And so we look forward 
with hope because of what we see behind us. It's this already not yet tension that we live in, and it's this already not yet tension that Advent is all about. To live with expectant hope for a coming Savior. The song of Advent is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And as we enter into this Advent season, the next uh, several weeks leading up to Christmas, that is really the, the cry and the prayer of our hearts that, that we would come into this season expecting to see a Jesus who did not simply exist previously, but who right now, today, in 2014, will show up as God with us in this season. And it's something that we desperately need. Uh, Interestingly enough, last night I spent some time at a hospital called St. Luke's with a dear sister of ours, um, Jenny Garcia, who uh, died this morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, if you didn't know that. Um, she passed away last night. She, she uh, and I had a conversation with someone this, this uh, week. Why do we say we die? We don't, we don't die. We get translated from this life into the next. And, and that's what happened to Jenny this morning at 3 o'clock in the morning as she was translated from one present reality to the next. And we believe from what Scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we rejoice that our sister's suffering is, is over. Um. But even as I went to the hospital last night and I was there just briefly with the family and was able to pray uh, for Jenny and with them, I, I, I even came with just this sort of trepidation and, and what, what do you even do in that moment? How do you even pray in that moment? And even last night, Antoinette and I were talking about it and wrestling with it and And because there's a certain amount of trust that God is sovereign over all of this and he is going to do what he is going to do. And yet he tells us in his word to ask and to expect and to um, boldly come before the throne of grace and to make every uh, request known to him. And, And so... I did the only thing I knew how to do last night, and I asked God for more time. I said, God, I I boldly ask you for more time, more time with our sister, and then just begin to break down, as, as I said, but I rejoice in your sovereignty, and I rejoice that her entire existence and every breath that she breathes is a gift from you. And where I see only in part, God, I trust that you see perfectly and your will will be accomplished here. 
It's this already not yet tension that we live in, that we, we ask expectantly but trust a loving Savior who is able to give in perfect ways that at times we feel like came lately. At times we feel like missed the mark, which interestingly enough is the definition of sin and there's no way that God can sin. God doesn't miss the mark. But I wonder how many people in this genealogy of Jesus thought that maybe God did. Because this harkens all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The very first prophecy of a Messiah. Of one who will come. And crush the serpent's head. I mean, Adam and Eve lived with that already not yet expectancy in their heart, knowing that God was going to send a seed of the woman who would come and would crush the serpent's head. But when was that going to come? 84 generations later. Hundreds and thousands of years Later, into the future, and so all of the people, the patriarchs and the matriarchs that we have in our Bible had to exist the same way that we have to exist. And the just shall live by faith. Every single one of them had to live by faith in the middle of this already not yet tension. It's, it's pregnant. The whole Bible is pregnant pregnant with expectancy for a savior and in this moment in Luke 2 when Quirinius is you know ruling and Caesar is saying hey you know um it's kind of hard to know if we're really getting all of the taxes that we could be getting if we don't know how many people there are. And so if we make all the people get counted and registered in certain places, then we'll be able to track them and we'll know if we're getting uh, enough taxes. Or in other words, if we can get more taxes. <laughs> this is a moment in time where the known world really had come to the depths of its depravity. There is pretty much one iron-fisted ruler over the known world at the time, and everyone lives in subjection and subservience to Caesar. It's not a question of whether or not you will render unto Caesar what is Caesar. It's a question of how long it will take him to steal it from you, to take it from you. This is where... Jesus enters the scene to a people who had lived for 400 years in silence, serving a God who had talked to them through his prophets for generations, and then he just went silent for 400 years. The Israelites only spent 40 years in the wilderness. But God goes quiet for 400 years. You know what's interesting is that it seems that what 
sparks hope, what kindles hope is hopelessness. And there's something inside of us that when we get to the very bottom, we look up. And there's nothing that can kindle and spark hope like hopelessness can. And these people are hopeless, in need of a Savior, knowing that he has been promised, but not knowing when he's going to come. But God, this sure seems like a good time. And so we see these events begin to transpire. Interesting, isn't it, that Luke takes time to talk about how Mary and Joseph are going to get to Bethlehem. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because in Micah chapter 5, the prophet prophesied that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. The problem is, is that the Messiah is about to be born to a peasant girl in Nazareth. So what happens? Caesar Augustus gets greedy. And he is about to do the very thing that God in his law commanded his people not to do. Did you know that? That God actually commanded the Israelites not to take census. Not to count the people. Because God knew that what that was all about was just taking everything from them. There's some people in the Bible that got in trouble for doing that. One of them's in Jesus' genealogy. His name is David. And so odd, isn't it, that here we would see a pagan man doing what pagan men do, sinning against the Lord and against his people, and yet this is what God uses to get Mary and Joseph to the place that was prophesied that Jesus would be born. Is that coincidence? Did God look forward in time and say, oh, 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 Caesar Augustus is going to get greedy and he's going to want to count all the people to get all the tax money. So if I just make sure that Jesus goes with this person, then they'll have to go there and that will work out in my plan. Is that what happened? No. Do you know what happened here? This this is going to mess with you a little bit. God made Caesar greedy on purpose. The Bible says that God is the one who directs the hearts of kings like water. You know how water, if you pour it out, will go in the path of least resistance, right? So you can channel it. You can move it. You can manipulate it. You can put it in a jar. You can pour it out on the floor. You can run it through a canal. And the Bible says that that a king's heart is like water in God's hand, that he can direct it in any direction that he so desires. So why did Caesar get greedy? God made him greedy. Why did God make him greedy? Because God declared that his Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And this was the means of how he chose to do it. So God used a sinning sinner as a means of providing his grace to his people in his son. You mean God is sovereign over all of this? Yes, he is. So what about the genealogy of Jesus? Every single person listed in Luke chapter 3 
was chosen by God. Chosen by God ahead of time. Did you know that there are some scoundrels in Jesus' genealogy? Some scoundrels. Every single one of them was a sinner from the beginning to the end. I mean, where does it start? With Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world, namely by Adam. It all began there. So was God surprised? Was God blown out of the water? I can't believe it. You blew it. I just, I wasn't expecting that. Is that where God was at in Genesis chapter 3? When all of a sudden he says, it's all right. There will come one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head. of. Did, did God just make that up on the fly? Did he just go, don't worry, I can fix it? To the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth. God was not surprised. And Adam wasn't an accident. He was chosen as much as any of the rest of these people. He was intended. Why? So that God could show as a real perfect heavenly father his perfect grace extended to a people who did not earn it we want to talk all the time about how that we have to choose so that it can really be love from us going to the father instead of understanding that our love is broken no matter how much we try to fix it but god's love is perfect and in his perfect love he predestined and chose us that's love not the other way around that's the love we should be celebrating not trying to celebrate our love of the father but rather celebrating his love for us in choosing us and in his foreknowledge predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son whom he would send who in some way has already purchased for us our redemption every single person chosen scoundrels to the last one beginning with Adam. Noah wasn't righteous before the flood, and the only reason Noah was righteous was simply because he believed God. Noah was a pagan along with everyone else. He was a sinner along with everyone else. And God, in his grace, extended his favor to him and saved him and his family. And then Noah gets off the boat and plants a vineyard, makes some really strong, good, I hope it was good, I hope it was good, really strong wine, gets drunk out of his mind. And, and we don't know what all happened. All we know is he made a fool of himself and ends up naked on display for everyone, right? This is, this is post-flood, right? He was a scoundrel when he was chosen, and he was a scoundrel after he was chosen. But God loved him anyways, because he chose him, because he was his, and he chose to extend his grace to him. Abraham, 
the father of the Israelite nation, worshipped craven images, idols, and God shows up and says, hey, you, I chose you. Come follow me to the land that I will show you. Let's go. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that, and Abraham believed God, and he counted it unto him as righteousness. So Abraham wasn't righteous in the sense that we know righteousness in the sense of he did right things. Abraham was declared righteous by God because Abraham believed what God said to him. That's it. So after God chooses him, you think he got his act together? No, they, they travel, they follow God, they go into Egypt. They see Pharaoh's there, and apparently Sarah, Abraham's wife, was extremely good-looking. And uh, Pharaoh had an insatiable appetite for good-looking women. And rather than standing up and saying, this is my wife, don't mess with her, no matter what that cost me, Abraham was like, oh, no, that's, that's my sister. Oh, you want to marry my wife? That's fine. She can go live with you in the palace. That's, that's great. Scoundrel! Then Pharaoh and his whole house get sick because God's going to protect his people. Pharaoh comes to Abraham, what did you do? Get away from me. You're a scoundrel. That's what he said. It's in Genesis. He didn't say that. David, a man after God's own heart, adulterer, murderer. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. And you go on and on. And then and there, there are these people listed here that if they weren't in the genealogy of Jesus, we wouldn't even know they existed. And yet God chose every single one of them. So what, what am I driving at? I'm driving at a couple things. The first thing is this. God is sovereign over it all. And none of this is an accident. It's not outside the realm of his knowledge. His arms are not too short. His eyes are not too blind. His ears are not too deaf to reach out, to see, and to hear what's going on with his people. He knows exactly what's going on. Here's what's going on. When all we see is hopelessness, God has already done what needs to be done. And we just need to wait it out and trust that God is good, that he is sovereign, and he will get his glory. Because there is nothing that God has purposed that will not come to pass. So that's number one. Number two is something that we brought up last week. And that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We went there last week and I'll just quickly read it again for you. Because this is very important. It says in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now just hang on right there. And because of who? Him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you. Just make sure you grab that. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the world, in the Lord. <clears throat> in other words, in other words, God chooses and uses the mundane things of this earth to bring about his purpose and to display his glory. And Luke does an exceptional job. And when I say Luke, I mean the Holy Spirit. Like, I think we need to make that distinction because we're going to talk like that sometimes. You know, we're going through the book of Luke. Luke is the one writing. We previously went through Galatians. Paul was the one writing. And so we may say sometimes when Paul was writing, when Luke was writing. But just hear what we're really saying there. When the Holy Spirit intended. Because Luke's not just pinning whatever he feels like. He's pinning what the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write. What Luke does a really great job of, what the Holy Spirit does a really great job of here in the Gospel of Luke is highlighting for us, and you'll see this over and over and over again. That's why I want to draw your attention to it, that we'll see here in the book of Luke God doing exactly what we just read, using the mundane things of this earth to bring about his purposes and his glory. And why should that bring us hope? Because I'm one of the mundane things in this earth. We don't have to seek to become so that God may use us. Did you hear that? We don't have to seek to become so that God may use us. God is going to use whomever he chooses. And whomever he chooses is the right one for the job. But what if they're a scoundrel? Then what are they going to boast in? What can they boast in except to boast in the Lord? It's interesting if you read through the Bible and you read through some of the people even listed here in Jesus' genealogy. And if any of them have any interactions with God. Maybe it records a prayer. Uh, this happened with David. It happened with Jacob. In fact, Jacob. Let's go to Jacob. This is, this is fun. Jacob prays a prayer at one point in his life, and he basically says to God, God, I am a worm. And do you know how God answered him? He didn't say, now, Jacob... You know, I made you, and, and I love you, and you really shouldn't talk about yourself like that. No, you know what God said? He said, shut up and listen, worm. <laughs> in fact, nowhere in the Bible will you hear someone going to God, God Almighty. Now, just go with me here. 
Because I think sometimes we miss something a little bit. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a plea for self-deprecation, but hear me. When you stand in the presence of almighty, holy God, it's like turning a light on in a dark room that you thought you cleaned. You ever clean something and then you realize, oh, it's, it's kind of dark in here and you flip on the lights and what you thought was like really clean was like not even close. That happened to anyone? No matter how clean you may actually be, when you stand in the presence of almighty, holy God, and the light of his glory shines on you, do you know what you look like in your own eyes? And it's accurate. A worm. Isaiah stands before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And what does he say? And I'm so glad that you showed up so that I could experience your glory like this. No, he falls on his face as unto death. And he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. I am an unclean man, and I have unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. And here's what God does. And this is what God does for us, and he does it through his son that we are, over the next few weeks, about to see his entrance into the world. Rather than trying to give Isaiah a self-esteem lesson. See, this is what God never does throughout Scripture. You can't find it. You'll hear people today that'll say, you know, brother, you shouldn't talk about yourself. You're, you know, you're, you know, you are worthy because, you know, whatever. When you stand before God, you are not worthy in yourself. But because of Christ, you have been made worthy. So see what God does with Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. God does not give him a self-esteem issue. He does not say, Isaiah, what you don't understand is that me showing up here means that I chose you, and so I'm about to bestow grace on you. He doesn't do that. Do you know what he does? He sends an angel who goes to the altar, who picks up the tongs and picks up the coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips with the coal from the altar. And he says, see, I have made you clean. We don't need a self-esteem lesson. We need someone who can come and make us clean. Oh, come long expected Savior. And so we see that God is sovereign over it all. And in his sovereignty, he doesn't choose the epic things of this world. He chooses the mundane things of this earth to bring about his purposes and to display his glory. And we're going to see that throughout this whole, this whole gospel. And so I would just say this. If you are feeling hopeless in this Advent season, hope has never been so close to you. If you're experiencing hopelessness, then I can with confidence say that hope has never been so close to you. It's interesting, and Solomon even talks about this, and he says that we shouldn't do this, but we do. We look at the wicked and we see how they prosper. And we say, why? Why? 
Why do the wicked prosper while I languish? Why, 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 you know, why do the good die young? <laughs> Could it be that the wicked have got all that they're going to get of good in this life while we await a glory that is beyond anything that we could experience here and now? Could it be that God uses the hopeless seasons and times of our life to display for us a bigger picture of his glory and his grace? Could it be a constant reminder to us that his grace is sufficient and the promise is coming? So if you are hopeless this Advent season, I believe that hope has never been so close to you. Hope is always an object and it's always an expectation. And we put our hope in a lot of things with a lot of expectations that are never met. But there is one who is hope. His name is Jesus. And he will not let you down. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that, God, you are sovereign. I thank you that you choose the mundane things of this earth, and that includes every single one of us here in this room. God, that means there is a lot of potential for you to display your glory to your people. And I ask right now, God, that you would, by your spirit, begin to spark hope and expectancy in our hearts. As we enter into this Advent season, God, I pray that we would be like Mary, pregnant with expectation. Lord, there are, in this room alone, hearts who have been hanging on to promises that you have made. And it feels like the heavens are shut up and you are silent. God, I pray that in this season you would speak, that the silence would be broken that hope and faith would arise among this people and that, God, we would eagerly enter into that already not yet tension, trusting and believing in what you have promised. We cannot believe on our own. And so we humbly ask for the faith we need to receive your grace in this season, Lord. Come, O long-expected Savior, we await thee. Amen.